welcome to the Pete's NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. If you've been following with our series on cognitive bias in healthcare this season, you've heard all about how our brains work to make decisions on the information given to us in a clinical scenario and the subsequent mistakes they can make that lead to diagnostic error. We've spent the last two episodes reviewing interesting cases from my career that presented with seemingly simple chief complaints, but ended up being severe acute care diagnoses. In our episodes so far, we've discussed six best practices to avoid cognitive bias in the first place. Need a refresher? Here they are in the order they were presented in the episodes. Number one, when a patient presents with the same complaint, repeat a complete history and physical exam opening up your differential diagnosis to the possibility for change. Number two, give objective handoffs. Number three, choose a consistent and structured strategy to work through your differential diagnosis that works for you. Number four, use diagnostic teamwork involving the primary care provider, subspecialist, allied health providers, and nurses as one way to promote medical decision-making. Number five, closed loop communication with feedback. And number six, cognitive autopsies, kind of like a post hoc analysis or morbidity and mortality case conferences for thought processes. And today we'll discuss one last case and two final best practice tools for you to think like an expert diagnostician. Let's get started. Up until now, the cases we've discussed have been encounters where I was the second provider whose spidey sense went off in the presentation, and I decided to dig a little deeper to uncover some major deficiencies in thinking. But I am certainly not infallible, and today I'm going to share a case where my own thought processes were biased. The patient was an adolescent female, a first-year college student who complained of foot burning for three to four months. Honestly, I think this is where I committed my first cognitive error even before walking in the room. Adolescent females are known for being histrionic, exaggerated, and dramatic. Your experience may confirm this impression too. And why? Because the stereotype fits with the classic developmental stage. Adolescents are gaining independence. They're in charge of their own bodies and choices most of the time. Yet they lack a fully developed frontal cortex that's responsible for decision-making. They're in a developmental battle trying to gain self-confidence and independence while coming up against self-doubt, making peers far more influential than their parents. They're focused on me, me, me. And because of all of these things, somatization and hyperbolic language are typical features of their self-centered nature. In seeing my patient's demographics and chief complaint on the board, 18-year-old female with foot burning for four months, I had just committed my first but not my last, error in cognitive bias, attribution error. Recall that this is a form of stereotyping where a person's character is deemed to be responsible for their complaint rather than a valid medical diagnosis. Adolescents are generally in some of their healthiest years of their lives. So of course I thought her longstanding non-acute complaint must be an exaggerated tale of a seemingly simple malady. Oh, how wrong I was. I committed my second offense in cognitive bias as I reviewed her chart. She had seen four providers in the last two weeks, including two podiatry visits, an ED, and an urgent care. 
I should have seen that as a red flag, but I didn't. The story goes like this. Right great toe pain began three to four months ago, and she saw ortho, who thought her pain was due to underlying morbid obesity and an increase in walking while at her new college campus. They gave her a walking boot, which improved the pain, but it soon migrated to the other foot. So now she has left great toe pain. So they put the boot on the other foot. The discomfort persists and she sees podiatry who removed both great toenails. She had presented a number of times over the last couple of weeks, reporting a migration in the location of her pain, each time being discharged with pain control. Our electronical medical record enabled me to review many of these visits, so I could see that she had had a normal x-ray, normal CBC, and most recently was empirically started on clotrimazole for a suspected fungal infection, which she hadn't started yet. By now, I was convinced that since all of these prior providers had nailed the diagnosis, pun intended, that all I could think of was tinea pedis. I was showing a combination of priming, premature closure, and availability bias. We know about priming from our case study on the four-month-old with quote-unquote constipation, but this time I added premature closure, having made my decision during chart review. Premature closure is the acceptance of an early impression as the diagnosis, without adequate verification or consideration of another explanation. And once I was in the room, availability bias kept my mind on tinea pedis. Availability bias is the tendency to inflate or deflate the likelihood of a diagnosis based on the ease of retrieving it from memory. When nothing else popped into my mind as an obvious answer, I had diagnosis goggles on and saw her plastic sandals as a source of poor foot support and dorm shower fungus. You might want some additional information. Her past medical history had a litany of chronic issues from morbid obesity to seasonal allergies migraines, hypertension, and even a history of tongue cancer, now cured. She was on amitriptyline, rizotriptan, loratadine, Singulair, and propanolol. I wrote in my focused exam, normal range of motion, no tenderness to palpation, no deformity, no swelling or pain with foot squeeze, neurovascularly intact with normal flexion and extension at each interpharyngeal toe joint and at the ankle, skin without erythema or lesions, right great toe with absent great toenail, dried blood, and well-healed granulation tissue over the nail bed. I remember thinking that it didn't really look like athlete's foot. In fact, it looked totally normal, minus the missing toenails. And if I didn't know what it was, I was going to document what it wasn't. You heard in that focused exam that I was reassured against fracture, sprain, acute bacterial infection, inflammation, or even tinea. So I expanded on my indecision in my medical decision-making. This is an 18-year-old, well-appearing female who presents with right great toe pain. Chronicity of the pain and nature of it migrating from one location to another is reassuring that there is no severe underlying diagnosis. Her right foot does not hurt at all currently. The burning nature of discomfort warrants her attempting the clotrimazole, though it does not explain why wearing her boot helps her pain. Suspect resiliency and psychosomatic nature contributing to her pain. Notes from ED, urgent care, and podiatry all reviewed and normal. Recommend follow-up with podiatry as needed. Wear boot as desired. Treat potential athlete's foot 
and wear well-fitting shoes with clean socks. There's no concern for acute trauma, bacterial infection, or severe neurovascular deficit today. Can you feel the irony? The uncomfortable knowledge that you know that I was wrong? Her foot may not have hurt right then, and she may not have had severe neurovascular deficit at the time of my exam, but it didn't stay that way. I got an email a couple of days later detailing what happened to her after she left the ED that night. She woke up the next morning with severe pain, blue and numb toes. She was seen at an adult hospital and diagnosed with a right popliteal artery thrombus that was occluding anywhere from 50 to 99% of the artery. They suspected that her four month history of toe pain represented embolization of the thrombus to the feet. She had surgery to remove the thrombus and was started on medical management of her clot. Thrombi can be arterial or venous, and we typically think of arterial thrombus as concomitant with atherosclerosis and implicated in heart attacks and strokes. Lots of things can contribute to the buildup of atherosclerosis in the arteries, some of which were included in my patient's past medical history, including high fat diets, smoking, alcohol, obesity, lack of exercise, diabetes, and hypertension. There are several categories of drugs that are used to treat or prevent clots, fibrinolytics, anticoagulants, and antiplatelet medication. But in this case, our patient needed surgical intervention to physically remove the clot. We often think of thrombi in the leg as being related to a deep vein thrombosis, which commonly leads to swelling of the lower extremities, acute calf pain, and can be reproduced with Homan sign and may lead to severe complications like pulmonary embolism. As I've said throughout this series, hindsight is 2020, meaning that only after a disease progresses to a more severe and obvious presentation can we look backwards and deconstruct our metacognitive shortcomings. I humbly admit where I went wrong in my thinking. And as I review my own words from the medical decision-making, I wish that I'd not been so confident in the four other providers who also had no explanation for her symptoms and instead taken some of my own advice to take it back to the patho. So what should I have done? For starters, how about best practice number seven? Clarify the patient's layman language and give it medical meaning. She kept saying foot burning, which was likely her word for the sensation of pins and needles that comes with poor perfusion. Like when you come inside with cold, painfully tingling toes that burn on a snowy day. Sounds like maybe poor perfusion or a neurovascular deficit to me. And her history of waxing and waning migratory symptoms alongside a normal physical exam also perplexed me. Rather than stick with the old diagnosis and discharge her home, I could have tried best practice number eight, a diagnostic timeout. Get a team of colleagues together to discuss presentations of curious complaints and work through the pathophysiology together. In a willing sacrifice of thoroughness over efficiency, Yale et al.'s 2022 publication of their pilot study on diagnostic timeouts for pediatric inpatients affirms that thinking slowly and deliberately about the differential can lead to new management, alternative diagnoses, and rarely does it seriously impact efficiency. This is metacognition and teamwork at its finest. It takes more time to intentionally throw away heuristics and focus on slower, more deliberate thought. But a case where the shoe just doesn't fit, 
and you have the instinct that something isn't right, that's exactly when you should take a lengthy time out. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP. Tell a friend about the podcast and how you enjoy the practical application of evidence-based practice for common clinical conundrums. I love getting emails from listeners at thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can also follow or DM me on Instagram at thepedsnp podcast. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the PedsNP. You can see show notes and references at thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You have to take time out for every kid. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.